Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to the Beyond 50 radio program. I'm Daniel Davis. As many of you have followed us over the years, you know that we like to bring wonderful adventure to you, especially for people who are at midlife and beyond finding that way to find a lot of excitement, adventure, and perhaps even pursuing dreams. One particular couple that we featured many times, or at least once, I'm sorry to say, I was going to say many years ago, was actually a 60, mid-60s couple who decided to journey across the Gobi Desert, share their adventures and what it was like to be in the exploits of China as a couple of Americans. Well, on the program today, we're going to have a story that's pretty unique. And in fact, it was on the cover of National Geographic magazine as a couple journeyed across America. We're going to find out about this story and more. And the new book is called So Long As It's Wild, Standing Strong After My Famous Rock Across America. And joining us here on the Beyond 50 radio program today is one such adventurer joining us, Barbara Jenkins. Barbara, thank you for joining us here on the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here and share some great high adventures. Well, I certainly hear the Ozark in you, as you like to describe throughout your book, being a hillbilly girl. Tell us how this all started for you, how it all began. What was the idea behind this walk across America? Well, the book is called So Long As It's Wild, and it is my memoir, and it starts, it tells the story of my poor hillbilly upbringing in the Ozarks of Missouri. And then, of course, uh, it's it's uh, the structure of the book. It you drop in when you're walking across America, and then it flashes back to my upbringing and the reason for including the whole uh, background of growing up as a hillbilly was because people needed to understand where I came from because it helped to prepare me to do such an epic journey of walking across America. I grew up next to the railroad tracks in a little house. All of our neighbors, no one could read or write. We were very poor. We did not have an indoor bathroom until I was about 12 years old. My grandparents lived in a shack next to us. The hobos would jump off the trains and come to the back door looking for food, and my mother would always give them cold cornbread and and a bowl of beans and send them on their way. But I grew up without conveniences, without fancy things. My clothes were homemade or from Goodwill. And so when the time came in my life that I... Uh, um, was asked to join Peter Jenkins' journey to walk from New Orleans, Louisiana to the coast of Oregon, 3,000 miles. Obviously, I didn't want to do that. It (laughs) It took quite an experience to convince me to go, but my hillbilly background is what prepared me uh, I had done without, and so uh, sleeping in a tent on the ground and uh, living uh, out of a backpack for three years was not that much of a stretch for me. <clears throat> so I hope that answers. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I hope that answers one, one question. Yeah, one of the things that I noticed uh, that kept coming up, uh, for me at least, as I was reading So Long As It's Wild, was the idea that your mother was actually very strong-willed, and that passed on to you, but kind of in a deeper way you probably didn't know at the time, 
but eventually that would become that kind of resolve you would need because of how things began to unfold after the journey was finished, the books were read, there was all the touring and the publicity. I mean, it was quite a bit back in the 1970s, which you had reminded me of, especially uh, when it came to getting new books published and writers is when I first started in the radio business is how there were book tours that you'd have these opportunities as people would go from different cities to promote their work and you get the opportunity to meet them and interview them and you don't really see that happening too much anymore in fact i don't think you see it happening at all i don't think anybody really does a book tour anymore unless you're a politician well, <laughs> well guess what i'm my book is launching this weekend actually tomorrow in franklin tennessee we're expecting a large crowd and then next week i am leaving on a cross-country book tour we will start in Oxford, Mississippi, and end in Eugene, Oregon. So we're very excited about this. No, this doesn't happen. Publishers do not send authors on big book tours like they did back in the 70s and the 80s. This particular book tour, my book tour, is being underwritten by L.L. Bean. So I'm going to be dressed in, you know, cowboy hats and vests and and boots and things that sort of give the image of still being an outdoors woman, which I am. I love to hike and work in my garden and my flowers. But anyway, the the publishers in today's world, the industry, they just do not. I, I think they just don't have the money. And with, it, with social media, <clears throat> uh, uh, so many authors are expected to pretty much promote their own work so um you're right Uh, they just don't do that much anymore right now let's talk about the journey itself how you came to meet peter i mean it seemed like this was something that he had started on and then you became part of or how did it all begin i was working on a master's degree in new orleans louisiana Peter came there. He had walked from New York to New Orleans. We met on campus, and it was kind of a dashing romance. He he looked like a Viking to me. He was he was so different from all the other guys on campus who wore khakis and you know uh, like golf shirts and you know they were very uh, straight laced. And Peter comes on campus. He's got this long, flowing, blondish red hair and sort of tattered clothes and <clears throat> he's sunburned and he he's you know he's he's very outdoorsy and he and so he really caught my eye and I didn't uh you know I didn't know how to meet him or anything but we were having a um sort of a party in the women's dorm and it was a roast for uh, some of the professors and so we were telling jokes and making fun and we had food and refreshments and everybody on campus was invited so we had a full house well peter came to that event and i that's where i first saw him and i and i thought you know i'd like to meet him well a few weeks passed and we were having another event in the women's dorm uh, one guy had kind of thrown some water on one of the girls in the kitchen, and she threw some water back. Well, before long, it was a full-blown monsoon in there. People were throwing water and 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 dousing each other, and it just became a a, a big a big party. And so everybody was getting buckets and pitchers full of water and throwing them on each other. Well, I had a bucket full of water and I was chasing a guy out the door and he got away from me and when the door opened there stood Peter Jenkins and I took that bucket of water and just dumped it over his head and that's how I met Peter Jenkins now was he already participating in or on the walk i mean was this an idea that he started with and you became part of or how did this all start it did start peter was very disillusioned with the country the vietnam war um 
uh, he was just, you know, a disillusioned young man and kind of set off to discover himself and his country. So he started in New York and walked to New Orleans and was going to write for National Geographic. Well, after we started dating and were together a while, he asked me if 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 I would help him with his article. And so I started reading it, and he was a good writer and editing it. <clears throat> and uh, we we dated each other for about nine months. And then Peter asked me to uh, join him walking from New Orleans to the Northwest. Well, that was, um, I mean, that was quite a proposal. <clears throat> and I, But I wouldn't do it unless I was married. And he said, so he asked me to marry him. We did get married. And I did join him. We walked from New Orleans, like I said, across Louisiana and Texas and New Mexico, Colorado, Utah, Idaho, and Oregon. Took us three years, 3,000 miles. And that journey became the cover of the August 1979 National Geographic. And out of that, because National Geographic at that time, I think they had, I don't know, maybe 12 or 20 million subscribers, but all over the world, but because we were on the cover of National Geographic, every publisher in New York was calling us, wanting us to write a book. So that's how we began. We wrote The Walk West, which ended up being a big bestseller and ended up being one of the one um, uh, one of 100 books that influenced American culture the most in over 100 years. And the walk books also became a permanent part of the White House Library. So um, we became, without really knowing it, we became America's sweethearts, so to speak, because we were adventurous and had started our marriage on the road. Um, but that's that's how it all began and, and and how I began, how I came to be a part of uh, walking across America. I found it really fascinating, too, how your journey ended was actually in Florence, Oregon. And I like that because our family used to go out to 10 Mile Lake, which is in that area out there, uh, for a nice little weekend of water skiing and camping and so forth. And uh, the Oregon Dunes, I was like, wow, how about that? And it's always funny to me when I get an opportunity to meet people like yourself. You know, you don't know them until the time that you're about to talk with them about what you're going And you realize, wow, we've got a lot more in common, that degree of separation. You know, for instance, in this uh, point here uh, was the idea that you had ended in Oregon, Florence, Oregon. And uh, as I was reading your book, uh, one of the chapters I really enjoyed because it wasn't maybe a little over a year ago for the first time my wife and I had actually visited Colorado, uh, started up in the uh, northwestern area of Dinosaur National Park and drove all the way down through Telluride uh, and Ore so forth and, and out uh, through Durango. And, you know, when I was reading uh, about the one place that she ended up having to uh, stay for 10 months, I thought, wow, people actually, it just blows your mind where people live in the United States. So as you're walking, and this was all by foot, you were averaging about 15 to 20 miles a day, give or take, uh, it kind of leaves you wondering how certain towns become what they are. People are still in them, but you wonder why do they live way out here? <laughs> so it really opened your eye to <laughs> America actually is versus the cities, especially this day and age that are getting all the attention from crumbling. And you realize, but America is not as soft as people might think it is from the outside. What we discovered walking across America, all the towns, I mean, state to state, town to town, they were unique and different and sort of had their own personalities. 
But so much of that is determined by the geography, by the weather, by the resources in the area. And, I mean, the little communities in the lowlands in the Atchafalayan Basin of Louisiana were totally different than the little townships and villages across Colorado. You have, I mean, everything is different from the weather to the geography, and that greatly affected the people who lived there and the first settlers. The first, you were talking about Lake City, Colorado. The first people to come into that area in Colorado were the prospectors, the miners looking for gold back at the end of the 1800s. And the only way they could get in there was by horseback. And they would build the stores and the saloons and, and their their shacks and, and set up camp and begin to work the mines and the mountains looking for gold. And then the women and the families followed. But it was it was a hard life settling across, I mean, all parts of this country, whether it was in, in the lowlands and the Atchafalaya Basin, uh, with the alligators and the pythons, or the Rockies, with the uh, with the blizzards and the uh, high vegetation and and I mean freezing to death. So it was fascinating to discover the different towns and communities across this country. And um, you know when you walk across anywhere. But when you walk someplace, you absorb it in a way that you can't do by car. You certainly can't do by uh, flying in an airplane. But when you walk, it's as though it becomes a part of you. And for me, having walked 3,000 miles across this country, I, I think I understand our land and, and our people in ways that most other people can't. We met and stayed with with just ordinary people, ranchers and farmers and teachers and just working men and women and listened to their stories and <clears throat> and learned about them. And and most people in this country are hard working people just trying to do the best they can. And, of course, we're bombarded 24-7 with media and everybody else's commentary and everybody else's opinions. But when you put that aside and you really experience what we have in this country, it is a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. And we do need to preserve it. Mm -hmm. In fact, speaking of Lake City, one of the reasons I brought that up is because uh, of the description of the Colorado Mountains. Um, uh, you were talking about areas <clears throat> that were pretty treacherous and and you, where you would be walking on roads without guardrails, and you're talking about an average of anywhere from 10,000 plus feet up. And I remember as we were in uh, Tolaride, I thought, well, you know, I'd never even heard of it. But she says, oh, no, I've heard of this. Let's go ahead and check it out. And you have to drive in 15 miles, but that's where it stops. But then you have to drive 15 miles back out the way you came in. It's like, is there no other road? And she says, and we asked actually a couple of people, they said, but they're all closed. And there would have been no way you would have made it anyway, even with a four by four, because of how right. those roads are up there. But when you're in it, you realize, I believe you, <laughs> and I'm not going to take a yeah. chance, chance yeah. just to try yeah. to get a shortcut. But then what even became harder about that is, like, for instance, when we were in Ore, which is where Box Canyon is and Box Falls, is as yeah. you leave there, we were leaving there, and it was kind of a gray overcast day, lightly raining, and we're on this road that you can only maybe average 15 to 20 miles an hour. And believe me, you don't want to go any faster than that because the cliff kind of overhangs the road. And we were on the outside part of the road, no guardrails, as you describe in the book. And it drops at least 200 feet, all rock. And it reminded me of like Lord of the Rings and the Passes of Morador. And I'm thinking, 
my goodness, I kept teasing my wife. Hey, how far down do you think that is? And she says, I'm not looking. I said, trust me, my heart was beating fast, too. I just wanted to get off that. <laughs> and that went for a few well, miles. But we it's pretty nerve-wracking. We actually walked across Engineer Pass and dropped down into Uray, Colorado. So I know that very uh, road. I know that country. I know that territory. And it is treacherous. And, of course, when we walked out of Lake City, we climbed to the top of a 13,000-foot peak. And standing at the peak, we were on an ice glacier, and the winds were whipping at about 70 miles an hour. And so we couldn't stay up there long because it was too cold. And so as we began our descent down the other side and toward Uray, it was there that I lost my footing and slid down an ice glacier. And it was just a miracle. My backpack got caught in an ice crevice and stopped my fall. Otherwise, I would have just gone right off the side of that mountain to my death. But mm-hmm. it is treacherous up there. And then we we came down the other side of that range, Continental Divide, to Uray, and I'll never forget finding a hotel once we <laughs> once we came off off the mountain. It took us about I think three or four days on foot to cross the pass. And it was cold and and sleeting and I mean when we camped at night, the winds howled and the sleet and snow were so strong it would blow the the top of the tent down to our faces. But once we crested the pass and made our descent, and after I nearly fell to my death, we slowly made our way down and back into Uray, which Uray sits, I think, at about 7,000 feet, which it was like breathing sweet air because when you're when you're up at 13,000 feet or above the air is so thin and you struggle but to with each step so getting down to your ray was just like heaven Mm -hmm. now let's talk about uh while i'm we're on the subject of lake city here uh, a particular character by the name of alfred parker (laughs) because again, as you were saying earlier, when you're on a journey like this, or even if you're like we are, you know, you're driving to these destinations, there are a lot of things you experience that you just don't expect. There's the map and then there's the territory. And what we were just describing is exactly that. There's the map. Oh, look at this cute little road bite saved me a whole, you know, 30 or 40 mile round trip. I'll cut through there. Well, that's impossible. You're never going to make it. And then when you realize where you're at, you think, okay, I believe you. <laughs> but it also comes yeah. in and with also the characters. You get to learn uh, the character of the area. And so I wanted you to talk about, if you can remember, Alfred Packer. Yes, Alfred Packer was one of those early gold mine prospectors. And he had met up with a, a group of men over in uh, Montrose, Colorado, And this was back, I think, in the late 1800s. And they were, you know, they were, there was the big gold rush. Everybody was headed to Colorado and California. Well, he met up with with, uh, a group of of, uh, miners. And it was was almost wintertime. And they, people tried to convince them, no, stay, wait until spring, because the winters are so harsh. In those, uh, in that particular part of the Colorado Rockies, but no, they were determined, and they left with their uh, gear and and began this trek over the mountains to drop down into uh, Lake City in Gunnison, Colorado, and go go to the gold to the gold mines. Well, it so happened that. They uh, they didn't make it. A couple of the men died, and there was no food. They were starving to death. And Alfred Packer 
in order to save his own life, ate one of his companions. Well, when Alfred Packer emerged from the winter and from the blizzards and and uh, the the treacherous mountains, when he emerged down into Lake City, uh, he looked well, and everybody thought, "Well, that's great, you made it." So where are the other people? Well, he admitted that he had eaten one of the other men. And so as a result, Alfred Packer became known as the cannibal of Colorado. There was a big trial in Gunnison, and he was um, actually, he got off. He, He was able... They 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 moved the trial to another county because everybody was up in arms, and they moved the trial to another county, and and he got off, and he actually died about six years later, I think, of a heart attack or arthritis or something. But anyway, that's the story of Alfred Packard, and there mm-hmm. was a monument there in in Lake City for him. Now I was through there a couple of years ago. And the monument is gone. So I don't know if they, <laughs> where they moved it or what they did with it, but it is no longer there. Mm-hmm. I also like, too, there was a part in, in that part of the story there that uh, you could see that judges weren't very politically correct back in the day. They just told it as it is. <laughs> well, stand up, you voracious man eating SOB, and receive your sentence. And, of course, that's yeah. part of what he said. I just got a yeah. kick out of that. That's just the thing yeah. is when you get out and travel, uh, when you take a look at what's happening today, it's kind of funny because as I'm out and I'm talking with people, and a lot of times with technology, it doesn't seem people do anything in reality. It more seems to be virtual reality. And then I'm sharing these stories, and the funniest, one of the most consistent questions I get, where do you come up with these stories? Like by getting out there and doing stuff for crying out loud, you know, I grew up in a family that traveled. We camped a lot. I mean, I I remember when I was growing up in Texas, I was uh, in first and second grade, and then we eventually moved back to California, but how we would leave and always drive from Texas to Chicago, Illinois, and sometimes we'd take a southern route and go through areas like Oklahoma, Missouri, Arkansas, and then go up. So I've seen a lot of the United States by the time I was in third grade, at least, you know, those areas there. And yeah. back then, you know, you were talking about dial-up telephones. You had the car radio, but that was about it. You were lucky if you had a car that even had a tape player in it, let alone, you know, more than just AM radio. So you found ways with your imagination just to keep yourself entertained. This day and age, you take a look, and it's SUVs with DVD players in the back. And I'm thinking, no wonder these kids don't have any imagination. But that's part of the travel. So what would you say about this journey, really, as you look back on it, really helped cultivate, and I wouldn't say change you, but made you become the kind of person you are? Oh, I think even after all these years, I am still gleaning from that experience. You know, there is a scripture that says to Abraham in the Old Testament, Abraham, arise and walk through the land and I will give it unto thee. Well, I feel like because I've walked across America, it was given unto me. So I I continue to, I understand people. I, I'm not, I mean, we met all kinds of people. And you begin to see what's real and what isn't. And you talk about virtual reality and everything is on the Internet and kids are glued to their iPads and their iPhones. And we're all, we're all guilty. I mean, I was in a room the other day, we did a television interview, and in the weight room, everybody in the room was on their phones. People weren't talking to each other. And I think that's what we're missing in today's world. Uh, When you talked about driving uh, from Texas to Chicago and getting to see this country, well, people 
people are moving so fast and they're in such a virtual world that their feet are not on the ground. They don't know who's around them. They don't really know how to make friends or to communicate with other people. And what I learned after that experience of walking across America and in my lifetime since is that people are just people. When you pull back all the all the uh, the layers, whether it is where they live or or their education or their political beliefs or when you pull back all those layers and you just see another person, another human being, we all have the same needs. We all, uh, we're, we're mind, body, and spirit. We all need uh, to have friends and to be connected. And I think that we're being so divided in this country on so many levels, whether it's uh, politics or culture or, or social media or, or what. So I think it's almost like we need to be purposeful. We need to set out and be purposeful. It could be something as small as speaking to somebody in the grocery store and giving them a smile. Human-to-human contact. And we've come so far from that that um, we're sort of imploding from within. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it actually (laughs) makes a lot of sense because what's happened is, as I would mentioned earlier, they have the map without the territory. Yes. And I think what's fascinating, I was also reminded a lot of a friend of mine uh, that I worked with years ago, and there was a time where him and his wife, they kind of moved to a new state. They didn't really know anybody, and they kind of got shut in for, I don't know, it was a, somewhere right around close to six weeks. And they talked about how they sat and they played cribbage and just connected with each other, and they didn't really have anything else. There wasn't really a whole lot of you know, electricity and all these other things that we're used to using for diversions. And so when you take a look at a trip such as walking across America as a couple, it's probably going to do one of two things. It's going to make your relationship stronger or eventually it's just going to fall apart because there are no distractions. There's no really go-to, especially when you're looking at the 1970s. Uh, When you took this from 1976 through 1979, this was three years so you yeah. take a look at there are no diversions. There's just you and your partner, and there's the world, and that's about it. And that really uh, begins to reveal a true sentiment of character. I think you're right. There is a, a dependency upon each other just for survival and safety. But at the same time, you know that you, your your character does begin to surface, and uh, <clears throat> of course, neither Peter nor I were perfect or are perfect. But the fact that you walk through so many different kinds of of uh, conditions, 130 degrees to minus 20 degrees on all kinds of terrain, in all kinds of in all kinds of weather. And that can make you uh, irritable and unhappy. And, you know, I mean, people get irritable if, you know, if they drive through McDonald's and the coffee's too hot. Well, we had to learn to be resourceful, to accept things the way they are, to take life one day at a time, actually one step at a time. And... uh there were no conveniences. It was just a matter of of survival. And uh, Peter and I, we grew close on uh, our walk across America, but there was also great conflict and great tension. But it was the, after the walk, we were on the cover of National Geographic, we wrote international best-selling books, but I would say it was the fame and the fortune that um, 
became the real wedge and created so many temptations and pitfalls. And that was really, uh, in my mind at least, where Peter made decisions to go in another direction and our marriage crumbled. So there, you know, fame and fortune is not all that it's cut out to be. And it can really destroy people. And it certainly destroyed our family. We had three young children. We had a beautiful farm in Middle Tennessee. And um, Peter was gone all the time. So this is after the walk. And, of course, my book, So Long As It's Wild, tells the story from my hillbilly upbringing to all the great, wonderful adventures walking across America. And then the aftermath, you know, what happened after the walk. And so it takes you through all the twists and turns, the ups and downs, the conflicts. But as um, the, I mean, some of the reviews and the endorsements have been wonderful. It, It takes you, it's like Publishers Weekly said, this is an epic journey, a cinematic sweep. Library Journal says, if you love Cheryl Strayed's Wild, or you saw that movie with Reese Witherspoon, you'll be captivated by the inspirational journey of self-discovery and reinvention. So, uh, so long as it's wild is also the story of the aftermath walk and my own self-discovery and reinvention. Now, one thing I did notice then that, you know, reveals itself is that uh, it seemed that you were this ideal, sweet couple of America doing this journey together and Christian at the same time. How important was that? Because I would feel that had, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to put it, but perhaps you can do that for me as far as the image itself versus the reality of what things were. That's a great question. Yes, we were we were the sweethearts of America with all of the adventure. We were also elevated as the perfect Christian couple, which was just simply not true. I mean, does anybody know a perfect Christian couple? We were newlyweds on a journey walking across America and really didn't know each other. We were in very abnormal circumstances and adjusting to each other as well as walking 15 or 20 miles a day and sleeping on the ground so you know how romantic is that so being Christian I think um, and of course I certainly felt that this was a purpose a call a mission for me I, I really felt like I was meant to do this. It was part of my Christian faith. And um, I think that there were many times I felt like a fraud or a fake because we weren't perfect. We weren't this ideal Christian couple. But I think if, if, if we're honest and we look at any couple, any celebrity couple in the media, and you have this image that oh they've got it all they've got fame they've got fortune everything's perfect in their world it is not and so um that's just part of the reality and whenever i Mm -hmm. see anything about a celebrity or or fame or fortune i mean i i kind of know the pluses and the minuses the blessings and the curses of that and it can really, unless unless you're mature and you've got a solid foundation and work through a lot of things so that you are really together, uh, fame and fortune can really destroy people. Yeah, I can certainly agree to that for sure. Now, you know, it's really fascinating as you have done this, I'm sure a very consistently asked question is so if a person decides to do this what kind of advice would you give to them when it comes to taking on a journey like this 
Well, to be honest with you, I don't think I would do it today in today's world, only because (laughs) there are so many areas of this country that are lawless. And let me quickly Mm. tell you, if you read this, um, I mean, if you read So Long As It's Wild, when Peter and I entered southern Colorado, southeastern Colorado, we were entering the San Luis Valley. And at that time, it was one of the most lawless areas of the state or of the Southwest. We were on a lonely road. It was at the end of the day. I always loved the end of the day because it meant we got to stop and rest and sleep. And on this lonely road, there were no other cars, no houses, no buildings, no nothing. And I did notice a jackrabbit off in the across the brush. And I heard a car in the background, and it was sort of rumbling. And it rumbled, and it drove up next to me. And inside were three, maybe four. I'm sure there were three. There might have been four drunk men. And they started grabbing. Their arms were out the windows, and they tried to grab me. And they started shouting obscenities. And, oh, come on, senorita, get in the car. Well, I kept mm-hmm. walking with down. Peter was up ahead. He turned around and saw what was happening, and he quickly walked back to me. We did not carry weapons, but Peter had, uh, we had our big golfing umbrellas, which is really like a spear or a sword. And so when he came back and, and, and these men saw him coming back, they kept uh, uh jumping on the uh, the gas and driving toward me and stopping and then back up and back and forth and back and forth trying to run me over. Well, by the time Peter got there, they threw it in reverse and were, were going to run us over. So Peter and I jumped across off the road, crossed the gully, and, and started running out in the brush. Well, they slammed it in drive and tried to come out there and follow us and run us over. Well, off in the distance came, we heard another car coming. And when they saw it, they jumped back on the highway and sped away screaming, we're going to come back and kill you. We're going to come back and kill you. Well, Peter and I, we saw them drive down that narrow road until they were out of sight and it was almost dark and we found a low place out in that open desert area and we just stopped like scared rabbits we didn't say a word we just hunkered down we didn't open our tent nothing we just sat until it got totally dark the stars came out the moon came up and we just rolled out our our mats and 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 laid down on our mats and just stayed quiet. And then before long, we heard the same car coming up and down that road, shining a spotlight. They were looking for us. And all night long, they went up and down that road looking for us. Well, they finally went on. And so Peter and I, Peter whispered to me, he said, were you scared? And I said, well, yes, I was going to take on the littlest one. (laughs) the next day day, we got up at dawn we barely slept that night we got up at dawn and it was about five miles into the little town of san luis colorado and we went straight to the sheriff's office and told him what happened and the sheriff told us that he had just shot and killed the leader of that gang of outlaws they came out of the mountains and he said they don't under understand anything but a sawed-off shotgun. And he told us that we were lucky to be alive. So that's one of, of one story of lawlessness. And in today's world, we know just if you watch the news or follow anything on the Internet, we know that we have some very lawless areas in this country. And... I would not, I wouldn't encourage anybody to be out there walking across America in today's world. 
Yeah, I certainly agree with you as far as uh, the experience goes. Uh, some time ago, we interviewed a woman who uh, drove across America, and she did it in a 1930-style roadster. And uh, one of the things she commented on, and this was back in, I believe, the 1980s that she did this, and what she commented on about America and people in America is how friendly, open, and helpful they all seemed to be in her experience. What was your experience? Was it like that in, in the cases where it wasn't unlawful? <laughs> totally. Totally. It was wonderful. We met so many wonderful people. They were helpful. They were friendly. They invited us into their homes to eat, to sleep, to take a shower. It was wonderful. The story of the outlaws was the only time anything like that happened. But Peter and I were also very aware of our surroundings and very cautious. We did not walk after dark. We camped in places that no one could see us or find us. So we were very careful because, I mean, even back in the 70s, you know, there there were ranchers who, you know, they might they might shoot somebody on their land. So we had to be careful even back then. But I'm just saying that as a culture and as a society, as a society today, that I don't believe we're as safe and as um, as a, and a, maybe as welcoming as as we used to be. But there are so many reasons why that is true today. Now, of the landscapes, which one did you feel most compelled or drawn to? Oh, I loved Colorado. I love the mountains. Um, I, I I would have to say Colorado. Now, I did love, uh, I loved Idaho. Southern Idaho, it, they call it Magic Valley, and just beautiful, beautiful geography and rushing rivers and beautiful farms, very clean. I loved, I loved Idaho. And and Oregon, I mean, every state has its own beauty. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, the Rockies are just so majestic and so overwhelming. And they just, I mean, you just stand in awe of the beauty. So I was truly drawn. The other re- reason I was truly drawn to the Rockies was because I had walked across southern Louisiana through the swamps. I had walked across the deserts and the breaks of Texas. I'd walked across the prairies of New Mexico. So when I laid my eyes on those Rocky Mountains, it was like I was looking at heaven. I knew it would be cool. It would be beautiful. There would be rushing streams and water. And I knew, of course, I knew we were going to stop over the winter. So I I I think the the Rockies were what drew me and sort of embraced me at that time in in my life. And of course we lived that winter in Lake City, Colorado, surrounded by three of the tallest peaks in North America. Yeah. Either Colorado was, it was a either place. Mm, Mm-hmm. I was, you know, <laughs> there's just so much to the wonderful imagination as you read your book, and only someone who experiences this firsthand, you know, can describe this in a way where it compels people to think, I would like to do this, maybe not necessarily walk across America, but the point is, is to experience these things. For instance, um, being in Utah, I remember for the first time going to Zion National Park. And I was surprised because I didn't know anything about it, really. 
And as you enter the park and you start seeing the first of the, I guess they're called petrified sand dunes. Now just kind of wrap your head around that one for a minute. I'd never seen anything like yeah. that before. They kind of yeah. emerge from the, uh, pine trees and they're up close and personal. And I'm not sure if it's changed, but you're a, we were able to drive through there. This was just a few years ago. And now you have to actually take, it's sort of a tour bus through there. I think they're just trying to limit the traffic. So it reminded me of things such as Yellowstone National Park or Glacier National Park. These were places that I went to as I was growing up, the Sequoia National Forest, the Redwoods. And I went at times where you could go in on the same day in Yellowstone or even Yosemite, and you could get in and pitch a tent on the same day that you showed up. For instance, about a year ago, we went to Sequoia National Park, and I wanted for the first time from that point to cross over to the east and go to the California bristlepine forest, which is the place where the oldest living organisms on Earth are. And the fastest way I could see to get there was to cut through Yosemite National Park. I'd totally forgotten that you need to make a reservation to get into the park. And I guess that even includes a day rate, like if you're just going there for the day for a picnic. So we travel almost 95 miles. We get to the gate, and the park ranger says, I can't let you in without a reservation. And I said, you're kidding me. I'm just wanting to really drive through the park to get to somewhere else. No, we can't let you do that without a reservation. And I was willing to pay 100 bucks. <laughs> so just please let me take this shortcut. So we ended up having to cancel that part of our trip because they just wouldn't let you through. But that's yeah. how much oh, yeah. America really has changed, you know, from the time that you were walking across America and the times that I was growing up in the 1970s, even into the 1980s, that you could easily access these places. And it's sad because it's like sort of that era gone by. And you look at the state of, you know, uh, the children and young adults of America today, and the fact that those opportunities aren't readily available, I think causes some of the disarray and the disconnection from the real world that I think a lot of our younger generations are experiencing. What are your thoughts on that? I couldn't agree more. I think that I think that young families will do themselves well to take their children, swim in a creek, go climb a mountain, take the kids camping, take them out in nature. And although you may have to uh, get a reservation for a campground, uh, but do your homework. Do what you children out of the concrete jungle and into nature. Uh, if you have relatives who live on a farm or uh, friends that live out in the country, uh, go visit go visit a farm. Go on a hayride. Go ride horses. Go do things that put your feet on the ground and where you are, you can see the sky and you can smell the smells of earth and hear the birds singing. You know, it's really funny. I live in Tennessee, and at night, you can hear all the tree frogs and the crickets and all the sounds of night. Well, the people who are jammed in these big cities, they don't, they don't have any idea what the night sounds are like. They have no idea. And I do think that we are creating a very just an unhealthy world the further we move away from the things of of nature the simple things and um you know it does it truly does concern me but but i think we have to start where we are with who we are and what we can do you may not have a lot of money to travel and do all these things, but you can take your kids for a walk in the park. You can uh, you can find things to do. Take them on a day trip somewhere. Do a uh, 
I know here in in uh, Tennessee we have dairy farms that offer uh, hay rides and homemade ice cream and things like that for kids to go to. And so th- there there are many things you can do. You just have to be resourceful and then be purposeful to do it. Mm-hmm. It's. Uh... When you speak of dairy farms, in fact, uh, we had moved from Southern California in about the mid-70s, I think right around 1976. And the place we ended up moving out to, imagine leaving Los Angeles, San Pedro, that area there, and moving out to a little place called Malino, Oregon. And right across the street was a working dairy farm started in 1939. And it reminds me when you brought up the uh, dairy farm uh, part of things is a uh, scene from the movie Roadhouse starring Patrick Swayze where he goes out to the countryside because he finds out somebody out there has a room for rent and he decides, well, I'll go ahead and take it. You know, it's basically like the uh, an area in a barn where you would have usually stored hay that was converted into a room. And he says, you know, I must have had at least 20 people come back here in the last year wanting and not wanting that. Why you? And he says, well, I guess you're just pretty persuasive. He says, well, you understand the fact is that people just notice that there's no running water, there's no electricity, and no tolerance for the fragrance of nature. What would you say was probably during your journey one of the most unique fragrances you experienced? (laughs) Oh, that's a great story. Uh, I I think I just, I I can remember it right now. I think just the smell of the earth, Mm -hmm. the smell of the earth, the smell of, uh, there, there were just so many fragrances. Um, I'll never forget being in West Texas with Homer and Ruby and these are old ranchers, their their little ranch house they had built back in the 1930s, just little three room house. And they were surrounded by 400 acres of, you know, cotton and wheat, and they were what were called dry, dry ranchers, dry, dry farmers, because there were no creeks or rivers. They just had to pray for rain. Well, anyway, while we were there, a tornado came, and they had a root cellar out back, so we knew that they were able to, you know, they had lived through enough tornadoes in that part of Texas. They knew exactly when to hit the root cellar. Well... Ruby and I, we were, we all watched the clouds and we saw the black clouds in the spinning funnel and it, it came almost up to the edge of their, of their ranch. And then it moved north and went up toward another town called Vernon, <clears throat> just ripping everything up, just tearing everything up. And so it was after the tornado passed and we were just sitting on the porch and the windows were open, and you could just smell the earth. I, I, it's a beautiful smell. Maybe people, the closest they can relate to it is when someone mows a lawn, and that that smell of a freshly mowed lawn, well, it's just the smell of the earth. It's a beautiful fragrance. Same thing you experienced, for instance, one night we were out in Sedona, Arizona, and it was a full moon, and I said, come on, let's go. And my wife says, where are we going? I said, let's go out to Bell Rock, because I knew as full as the moon was and as clear as the sky was, what you were going to see was moonlight just splashed across areas like Bell Rock and uh, Court Rock and so forth. But what you heard was the subtle sound of quiet in the desert and the smell of the earth, like you said. And it also reminded me of why these things are important for all of us to do this is, for instance, when I talk about going to Monuments Valley for the first time, and I didn't know what that was either. And when you're out there, you're like, oh, I remember this. So when I describe to people what Monuments Valley is, I simply say, did you ever see the movie Forrest Gump? They'll say yes. Okay, do you remember when he went on that long run? Yes. Do you remember that moment that he stopped and he decided he was done? And they said, yes. I said, that's Monuments Valley. And as neat as that looks on film until you're there, 
until you experience these gargantuan monuments of rock and you realize at one time this was the bottom of an ocean. Yeah. And you can literally, for me personally, I could hear the sounds of the elders echoing through the valley. And you can only experience that by being there, much like Zion National Park, many of the areas that you describe in your book. And that's why these things are important is because they awaken the soul and the imagination. And that's what that's all here for. A question, I guess, finally, this, Barbara, what's next for you? (laughs) Well, I'm getting ready to do, as I told you earlier, this uh, book tour, and which will take us, uh, we start in Oxford, Mississippi, and will take us all the way to Eugene, Oregon. And we will visit while we're at our last stop. We will go on over to the coast and go to Florence, Oregon, to those dunes where we finished the walk across America, just for memory's sake. <clears throat> but I think what's next for me, I'm a very, um, I'm a person who has to feel like I have something to say or a mission. So what I do next, I might write a novel. I might do a children's book. I really don't know. But I think right now I'm, this book is is being launched, and I'm just, um, I'm sure you saw where Dolly Parton endorsed it. Uh, people like mm-hmm. Hillary Swank and Connie Britton and, uh, it's it has gotten some great endorsements and reviews, and it's not because I I mean the story carries the reader. It's not me. It's it's just the story that takes the reader on a wonderful epic journey, and at the end it's sort of like well it's real, it's loving, it's messy, but you're glad you read it and you feel empowered and inspired. And so what's next for me is just uh, doing all of these autographings and uh, letting people know about this book, So Long As It's Wild. I was asked, (coughs) excuse me, I was asked, how did you come up with that title? The title, we've been talking about naturalist and beauty and nature, the title comes from John Muir, and I know you've heard of him. He was a oh, yes. naturalist, and uh, he he walked <laughs> uh, through a whole lot of wilderness, and he he was just such a, uh, um, a a great writer and a great spokesperson, and <clears throat> and so he. He had this famous quote, and it was called, God made everything beautiful so long as it's wild. And that just hit me like a ton of bricks. And I said, there is the title, so long as it's wild. Well, that certainly makes sense. Barbara, first of all, thank you for joining us here on the program to share your story. Is there a website? How can people get more information about your tour and your book? Yes. All they need to do is go to BarbaraJoeJenkins.com. Barbara Joe, and Joe is J-O, Jenkins, J-E-N-K-I-N-S.com. The reason I had to put Barbara Joe in there is that there are a lot of Barbara, Barbara Jenkins in the world, but there's no other <laughs> Barbara Joe Jenkins. And the Joe helps you stay wild, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. But on the website, you can -hmm. can find links to to pre-order the book. Uh, uh, There's uh, all kinds of information, even photo galleries of the places you read about in the book. Well, very good. Barbara, thank you again. What an adventure. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been a delightful conversation, and I hope we have piqued the imagination of your listeners. Well, at least hopefully get them motivated to get started to explore what we have under our feet. No doubt about that. Thanks again. Yes, yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. 
We want to thank you, the listeners out there, for tuning in. One adventure you can take is to go to our website and sign up for our weekly e-newsletter. Boy, what's in store for you there is going to definitely compel you to keep visiting over and over again. That's at beyond50radio.com. That is the number 50. We do encourage you to sign up for our weekly newsletter and stay in touch with what's going on in the world of Beyond 50 as well as our upcoming shows. I'm Daniel Davis. Thank you for joining us. This is the Beyond 50 radio program. And remember, wherever you are is where you should be. Have a great day. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.